Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And our guest today is Henrik Nelson, who is The Daily Journal reporter, who covers the state bar and, and the bar exam and issues in the legal profession. Henrik has extensively covered especially the issues surrounding the bar exam, and we'll be talking about that and other things as well. Henrik is the person on the Daily Journal staff who focuses on these issues. He came to the Daily Journal after a distinguished career with major newspapers in Sweden, covering a range of international political and legal subjects. Henrik, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Howard. Uh, You know, we look back at the reporting in the Daily Journal and, and this crisis involving the bar exam. It came to a head in an unusual way. It came to a head in May of 2020, I guess, when the February 2020 bar exam results uh, were reported, which only had, I think, 26.8% of those taking the exam uh, having passed. And so the state bar and the Supreme Court had to deal with this a longstanding issue about the bar exam passage rates, as well as the impact because of COVID. And so the first discussion, was it not, and it did not start in May of 2020, but followed very strongly then, had to do with what the cut score should be, and especially the deans. Did the deans of California ABA law schools have a real position on that? Yeah, so obviously the cut score has been a, been an issue for a very long time. California at the time had the second highest cut score in the nation. I think only Delaware had a higher cut score. And like you said, this sort of came to a head in the February 2020 exam. Like you mentioned, I think 27.9% of all applicants who took the exam in February passed. Uh, and that, that's a record low number. If you look at previous years, uh, 33% passed in 2019, 29% in 2018, and 35% in 2017. So it's been pretty low, especially during the February exam, but but this year was uh, definitely uh, a new low. And so the deans of the ABA schools, as a matter of fact, the deans of all law schools in California, then took a strong position that the cut score should be lowered. And how did the state bar and ultimately the Supreme Court respond to that? Has has the cut score now been lowered? Yeah, so they lowered uh, the cut score in July after uh, yeah this long debate about the cut score. Um, but, but they lowered the cut score in connection with all the changes to the uh, bar exam this year because of the pandemic. So they lowered it from 1440 to 1390, which is still a pretty high number. I think California is still ranked among the, yeah, the highest cut scores in the nation still. And I mean, it met some resistance, especially from attorneys that I talked to um, who said that lowering the cut score risks altering the the quality of the legal profession there have been reports in 2017 that came out that show that there seems to be some connection between a lower cut score and malpractice issues so that that has been uh, up for debate but it seems like the court sort of sided with the deans and the bar because lowering the cut score would also um, improve diversity in the legal profession according to some 
major reports that came out from the bar this year as well. But even that cut score, the 1390 cut score, is higher than the average cut score that's applied to a significant part of the exam by other states. The the, the average is it, it's still above the average nationally, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's still above, I think, New York. Um, and so we have the cut score. But what you mentioned is equally significant, which was this change was made uh, in terms of the difficulties of doing an exam in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic. So the the Supreme Court faced that issue as well. And they finally announced a series of measures uh, along with the uh, lowering of the cut score. And what did the Supreme Court do in terms of dealing with the uh, with, with the COVID-19 issues, which really were, can you gather large numbers of people in large halls, as is traditionally done, thousands of people who take the exam sitting next to each other, uh, can, how do you do that in the midst of the pandemic? So what did this Supreme Court finally decide to do about that? Yeah, well, the answer is that you can't uh, gather a large number of people uh, for the exam. So um, the October exam, which is coming up next week, it's going to be online for the first time in history. So they implemented some uh, historic changes, really. I mean, the, the cut score is one issue and then the online bar exam. And then they also implemented a temporary provisional licensure program. So that will allow 2020 graduates to practice under supervision of a lawyer until June 2022. And after that, they would have to take the exam again. Let's, let's talk about those things and focus. The exam, and this could not be more timely, uh, we are recording this on October 1st, and you will be listening to this initially any time in the week of uh, October 2nd or the week of October 5th, and the exam is being given online on October 5th and 6th in 2020. How is that being done online? What are what are the issues involved now with the online administration of the exam? Yeah, so there are a lot of issues, especially when I've talked to students who are preparing to take this exam. I mean, there are software issues and uh, hardware issues but so the exam is going to be administered over two days uh, online, like I mentioned. Um, I think it's going to be pretty similar to the traditional uh, bar exam. But students are going to be remotely proctored. So that means that uh, a webcam will record them throughout the entire session. And then an artificial intelligence software will sort of see if there's any suspicious activity going on and if you're flagged for suspicious activity, uh, human proctors will look at the videotapes. So th that's how it's going to be administered uh, this year. And we should mention, though, that sounds like a major change. It's important to realize how the exam has been administered for the past few years. First of all, since 2017, the exam has only been a two-day exam. It used to be a three-day exam, but in 2017, it changed to a two-day exam. Uh, the state bar had spent enormous resources in, in, in psychometric analysis of what difference the three-day or the two-day made in terms of the measurements that are being done. And it turned out that the two-day was as, uh, as accurate in terms of what was being measured as the three-day, so that it's a two-day exam on October 5th and 6th is not a big change. And in terms of being done on a, on a laptop, I mean, even when the students gathered in a large hall, 
this was done uh, on on computer, was it not? Which and, and with the answer then being uploaded uh, after the answers after the exam parts were finished, hasn't that been done even when people were together in in the room rather than having it done uh, online from their own from other places? Yeah, uh, but the difference is now that students will. Uh I should mention that some students will still take the uh, exam in person and the bar has uh, provided accommodations uh, for those students who can take the exam uh, remotely. But the difference now is the students are going to sit in their homes um, being uh, taking the exam and, and being monitored through this webcam, uh, as I mentioned. And so it also means that they, they will have to download a, a software from this company called ExamSoft, which is a, a vendor uh, that the bar has hired to administer the exam. When, when they open the program, their laptops will be locked and they won't be able to do anything except to look at this uh, exam and take the exam. And in the past, they've also done it when it's been done on computers. It's simply been done with, with the questions appearing, but also... In the past, uh, it's been a long time since only papers were turned in. I mean, even when people gathered before, answers were still uploaded from the then existing software program. So let's talk about this year's bar exam in terms of that. Uh, we have that issue. The students had several uh, concerns. For example, uh, many of them thought they had to go out. There was an issue about purchasing new laptops and that became an issue. I know you had done a story on that. And what 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 was that issue? Yeah. So before taking the actual exam on October fifth, students had to submit two mock exams. And and during those mock exams, students that I talked to reported several software issues, such as their laptops freezing or, you know, being unable to type an exam. And there have also been some complaints about the general interface of the program. Uh, for example, students can't take um, physical scratch notes. They have to use a notepad in the exam. And there have been issues with that notepad that it's too small, it's difficult to copy and paste. But there have also been issues with users who have been able to, for example, copy and paste from their iPhones into their Apple laptops when they're using the software. So for example, if I write a note on my iPhone, I could copy that into the exam, which could potentially lead to students being able to cheat on the exam. ExamSoft said that they released an update to that problem and also said that that sort of cheating would be noticed because apart from recording them on their webcams, their screens are also monitored. No, and I think, you know, that's one important difference to point out in terms of security, because even though computers were used when students went to the large halls to take the test, uh, no iPhones, no other electronic equipment was permitted in the room so everyone had to give up their their phones and uh, and they were kept during the course of the exam outside the use of the students so there was no no way to have and by the way very serious violation for anyone at the exam who attempted to bring in a phone and, and use it it really uh, uh, made it very difficult to be admitted to the bar with, with having done that but being done remotely with everyone at home then the iPhone, uh, does pose a, a security problem in terms of aid uh, and uh, 
Is the software company confident that it can deal with that in terms of the webcam and artificial intelligence and, and watching closely? Yeah, when I talk to uh, Examsoft, they, they seem pretty confident that that won't be an issue. Um, but there have been other issues because Examsoft is the only company left. There were originally three vendors, so Extegrity and ILG Technologies that administer the exam in other states. Extegrity dropped out saying that it's difficult to administer such an important exam and without exam takers running into issues. Because you have to remember, I think last year, 40,000 people around the country took the exam at the same time. Uh, so Extegrity dropped out. They also mentioned that there are integrity issues with uh, monitoring people. And then ILG Technologies, they experienced glitches during the Florida exam and they sort of struck out. And uh, ExamSoft, they administered the exam in July in Michigan. And in Michigan, test takers experienced a, a delay after they were un unable to log in to the program. And the company later stated in a tweet that they were subjected to a cyber attack that targeted the login process. Uh, although I also should mention that all exam takers were ultimately able to finish the exam. But it kind of shows and gives a legitimacy to the worries that a lot of exam takers have, especially when it comes to administering such an important exam. But ExamSoft seems confident that they're going to be able to administer the exam. Now, at one point, the deans, again, wrote to the bar in the Supreme Court and urged that the exam be an open book exam. I mean, the exam has traditionally not been an open book exam, but the deans urged that it be an open book exam. And basically, the dean's argument rested upon the fact, by the way, many other bar exams equivalent around the, mm -hmm. around the world are given uh, an open book. Uh, but the deans took the position that, look, uh, they can't find any lawyer who'd ever practiced law in a situation where a client walked in and said, here's a problem you need to answer in 45 minutes or an hour, and you can't look at any book to answer it, uh, and that it was possible to test the ability to do analysis and the questions, to frame the questions and do the things in a way that didn't require uh, uh, not, not a closed book. Uh, the bar and the Supreme Court did not agree with that, and a lot of it is because so much of the exam is a multiple-choice exam, and that's the one place where open and closed books would make a huge difference. But the deans were very serious about it, weren't they? They really – they pushed for many changes here, and one of them was to have an open book exam, and the other was to have a non-monitored exam. Did the deans suggest that at one point as well? Yeah, they, they submitted a, a letter uh, to the Supreme Court urging them to reconsider the online exam. But the deans wanted several things in addition to the open book. They wanted non-monitoring, and ultimately that was not agreed to either uh, because the exam kept with its historic format, relying on the, uh, uh, you know, relying on a closed book exam, monitored, proctored, closed book exam, and just making technical changes to maintain those standards. Uh, but let's talk about one other thing that, that the deans raised and that, that comes up in this context. Uh, traditionally, when I say traditionally, before uh, 2020, in the 18 and the 17 exams, uh, it was a two-day exam, 
Uh, but one of the days was a 200-test multi-state bar exam question done by the National Conference of Bar Examiners. Uh, for the October administration of the exams, there is a different multiple-choice exam being prepared by, by the National Conference of Bar Examiners. It only has 100 questions, and they've been quite clear in this that they do not have the kind of reliability studies for the shorter MBE than for the previously longer multi-state bar exam. And how did that play into this discussion? Again, what, what were the in terms of the deans, it seems to me the dean's position was do it open book, don't have proctoring, and ideally uh, have a diploma privilege. Uh, but a large, large part of it rested upon a sense that in this crisis, uh, there was no way to do what the state bar was attempting to do, so there should be other major changes. But I take it the, the bar and the Supreme Court did not make any changes after their July announcement. No, there there haven't been any changes as of yet. Um, and I doubt there, there will be since there's such short time left. But the deans, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, they, they wrote a letter to the Supreme Court saying that there, you know, a lot of issues are being reported. They're, they also cited integrity issues, and it would also avoid problems with students' hardware. And I should also mention that other groups, such as the ACLU and the Association for Software Testing, have also submitted similar petitions to the court that the integrity issue is a big problem. I mean, because people are being monitored in their homes and some don't have access to quiet testing areas, uh, saying it becomes an issue of who has the means to take the exam, essentially. We've been talking about what will happen in this bar exam. There are legal issues and other issues. But for those of you listening to this podcast, you can get MCLE credit uh, for listening to this podcast. And we'll now take a break. Uh, so that you can hear how to get MCLA credit uh, in addition to the value that you get from listening to this podcast. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. It seems to me that as we talk about this, we're looking to the potential for major controversies after the exam is administered. I mean, there are going to be all sorts of issues raised by people about the unfairness of positions they were put in. Uh, are, are people focusing on that? Is, have there been discussions about the potential for litigation coming out of this? Yeah, there has been, especially when it comes to the issue of retroactivity. Like we talked about before, the deans also asked for retroactivity. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. 
Um, I also talked to a judge previously who said that the issue of retroactivity, that people can claim uh, that they're not being treated equally under the law. So there have definitely been some litigation. And also recently, a group of students with disabilities uh, filed a lawsuit against the state bar saying that the bar should uh, be required to accommodate disabled students in their homes. But a judge recently ruled against that lawsuit, uh, saying that the bar, if, if you take the test in person, students with disabilities, they do have accommodations. So there have already been, I mean, lawsuits and issues of litigation raised in connection to this. We should. I'm very glad you mentioned the issue of, of, of retroactivity, which we did want to spend some time on, because the claim is now being made, again, the deans requested, that since the Supreme Court has decided that the appropriate cut score is 1390 instead of 1440, uh, the test again results being translated into that standard measure of score. Since the Supreme Court has now decided that not just for the October exam, but going forward, the appropriate cut score for what the exam says it tests, the state the bar exam says that what it is testing is minimum legal competence. And that if the Supreme Court has now decided that a cut score of 1390 is the proper cut score and not the previous 1440, that that score should be applied retroactively to those students who scored above 13 in the range between 1390 and 1440. But that also has not been uh, treated positively, has it? No, and it's interesting because going back to what we, how we started this conversation, uh, the deans in their letter to the Supreme Court um, asked that the cut score be at least applied retroactively to the February bar exam takers. So those who got a 1390 on the February exam should be uh, admitted to the bar. And they wrote in the letter that it seems that the court's decision to lower the cut score stems from the low results from the February bar exam. They also raised the, the issue of litigation in, in that letter, saying that if this were a litigation case rather than an administrative issue, the decision of the court would apply to that case. And I should, we should mention that uh, the state bar's standards for fairness here but have been extremely tight. I mean, the most dramatic example was several years ago in a San Bernardino testing center. A session was going to end at noon and a few minutes before noon, I think less than 10 minutes before noon, there was an earthquake uh, sufficient enough so that people were you know, on the floor and, and broke early. They missed that 10 minutes. The state bar then spent an enormous amount of effort and resources to bring in psychometricians, specialists on exam results, and those psychometricians looked at the exams of all those who were affected by the earthquake and actually adjusted the score, and several people in San Bernardino were given passing grades because of the psychometrician's judgment that but for the earthquake 10 minutes before the end of one of the sessions they would have passed. So the state bar standards, I mean, this is, has been from a technical standpoint in terms of what it, what it says it measures, in terms of the technical standpoint that has gone in to dealing with fairness and accuracy. And the state bar has established a very high standard 
as is illustrated by the way the earthquake, the 10-minute imposition on the earthquake. Uh, and of course, the claims will now be made that the difficulties that will be faced uh, on October 5th and 6th in many cases are, are far greater than simply that 10-minute uh, uh, difference uh, in taking the exam. So I think we are looking uh, to a very complex post-exam situation here, which is really what led to a more basic demand than the nature of the test, which is there was a demand by many that right now there be no bar exam until people were able to come back and uh, take the exam in its regular way, and that instead all graduates be given what's called a, a diploma privilege with the right to practice law until they could take the bar exam to test them. And a version of that was adopted by the Supreme Court as part of what it did in July dealing with this issue. What did the Supreme Court do on, on the issue of the diploma privilege? Yeah, so they uh, directed the bar to develop a temporary licensure program. But this is different from the diploma privilege that these student advocacy groups, mainly united for diploma privilege, have advocated for. So diploma privilege, uh, I think uh, in Wisconsin, there's a similar program. It would simply allow graduates to become licensed without taking the exam. And they're arguing, just like you said, because of the circumstances that people have to take the exam in, it's not feasible for a lot of people. But the difference between the diploma privilege and the temporary licensure is that the program that the bar is now developing and that they have submitted the draft rules to the court for approval for, it allows graduates to practice under supervision of an attorney. So the program runs until June 2022, and after that, the participant have to take the exam. But it's pretty uh, generous in terms of what the student is allowed to do. So, you know, they, they have to pass a moral character exam, but they're allowed to practice in a wide range of practice areas, uh, as long as they're supervised by an attorney who has practiced for at least, I think it's four years. You know, we should mention the clear, the diploma privilege as originally requested based on the Wisconsin model. And people commented on that, that Wisconsin has a long history of permitting graduates of, it, of its Wisconsin law schools uh, to become members of the Wisconsin bar. But there are only two law schools in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin and, and, and Marquette. And so... Uh, the response in terms of discussion is that that's a very different situation than California, where there are over 20 ABA accredited schools, as well as numerous state bar accredited schools and unaccredited schools. And so a scaling up from, from the Wisconsin model is something that involved uh, far different, involves far different considerations than simply what Wisconsin did. So instead of the diploma privilege, there was a temporary licensure and practically, how do the students react, the ones you've spoken to as part of the reporting? How, how have people reacted uh, to the temperature, the temporary licensure program, especially uh, the graduating law students? Yeah, I should mention that, that I've talked to people uh, who are, are for diploma privilege. Um, so they, they're arguing that this doesn't go f far enough, that the courts compromise. So just like you mentioned... California has several types of law schools, uh, and Wisconsin has two ABA law schools. Uh, but they're arguing that 
this initiative doesn't go far enough. And they're also saying that, I mean, e- even after 2022, what, what happens then? Will they, will their employer allow them to study for the exam during that time? You know, w- will it pose other sort of issues uh, after they f- finish the program? Yeah, no, there are lots of issues that it's important uh, that people have focused on. Uh, for example, uh, the issue of, of equality and equity, the requirement that there be a supervising lawyer uh, gives great advantages to people who already have contacts within the legal profession. Uh, but someone who doesn't already have contacts might not have an especially easy time finding a lawyer uh, who is willing uh, to supervise under the temporary licensure program. So people were very concerned uh, about that, about the equality of the program. And uh, then there's the whole question It goes to January of 2022 about what happens after that. So are people still pressing for more, something closer to a diploma privilege? So the inequality aspects of requiring supervision uh, can, can be dealt with? Um, yeah, so these student groups uh, that I mentioned, they uh, they filed a petition to the Supreme Court uh, just this week. Their earlier petition was denied by the court. So they're still, I think this was sort of the last push before the bar exam. But I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to argue for diploma privilege even after this. I mean, this diploma privilege group has spread across the nation. So it's become a pretty powerful movement, at least in the legal profession. Well, and we should talk about why. I mean, you've spoken to the students, and I want to hear what, but clearly what they say is, you know, we've put three years of our life into this at great expense. Uh, We now find ourselves as something totally out of our control because of COVID that we can't take the regular bar exam. Uh, I take it, so this has had an impact on people's ability to obtain employment, hasn't it, in terms of of the delay in the uh, in the bar exam. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people are worried. Like you said, not every law student has the necessary contacts to practice under the temporary licensure program. And I've also talked to law firms that say that with everything that's going on with the bar exam, a lot of students will find it difficult to find work, especially when we've seen a, a recent recession and law firms have cut back already and there's been layoffs, there have been salary cuts and so on. Even recruiters have said that this is similar to the Great Recession in 2009, where even if uh, law students were initially hired after graduating, they uh, rescinded their offers uh, because they couldn't afford hiring students. So, yeah, there are a lot of (laughs) problems. No, the employment situation is, is, is quite serious in terms of difficulty of getting employment. But even in terms of timing, I mean, there are some jobs, some government jobs and some others as well, that require membership in the bar uh, in order to, uh, to be employed. So that comes to the question of when the bar is taken in July, its uh, results have, have, during the past several years, have been made public to the individuals in a couple of days after, afterwards, but public to the, to, to the individual took the exam on the Friday before Thanksgiving. That has been the day in November, near the end of November, uh, that people learn about the bar and those that have passed uh, get sworn in as quickly as possible, ordinarily late November or December, they are then members of the bar. Now the exam, the two-day exam, 
is being given in Octo- on October 5th and 6th instead of the last week in January or in July or earlier. So when is it anticipated that these results uh, will come out so that people will know, those who've taken the exam, who passed it, will know that they've passed it? Is there a, been an announcement or schedule on that? Yeah, so the bar has said that they're uh, working on expediting the uh, grading process of the exams. So right now it looks like the results will be in by January 2021. And it's unclear what effect that this will have on those who failed the October exam in terms of if, if they will be able to apply for the February exam. Last I heard from the bar, uh, they told me that they continue to work with the court and the National Conference of Bar Examiners on the February exam. And I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible that they will extend the application deadline for those who failed the October exam and who are looking to apply for the February exam. But still, like you said, there are employers out there who require that you have already passed the bar exam. So these students will have to wait for a pretty long time without having a job, which for a lot of them, the students that I've talked to, they they mention economic issues. And some of them have moved back in with their parents because, yeah, they don't have a job. And the bar says it's expedited. But, you know, when you look at the calendar... Uh, the exam if, exam given in near the end of July, with the results come in on the Friday before Thanksgiving, they're really talking about the months of August, September, October, and November, basically four months before the results. If the exam is given in October, and you're still talking about getting the results, say, the third week in January, you're still talking about the bulk of October, November, December, uh, and, and January. It may be a week or two faster from the time of the administration to the uh, uh, to the announcement of the results. But it's certainly, no matter if, if that's the schedule, it's certainly not dramatically, not dramatically shorter than it than it was previously. Uh, so but the real impact, which you've talked about, is if people don't hear about the exam until the third week of January, and the February exam is given usually the beginning of February, and you've got to register for it earlier, uh, they're going to have the people involved. They're going to have to make some changes, uh, aren't they? Because the idea that those who now fail the October exam would not be able to even take the February 2021 exam would just add to the total sense of unfairness in terms of what's happening, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Th- that's why I, I mentioned. I think it's very possible that we will see some action on on extending the deadline or even pushing the February exam forward to a later date, which uh, I've also reported on <laughs> February bar exam takers who are finding themselves in a similar position as the October bar exam takers did a couple months ago. You know, they're equally as worried about how the exam will ad- be administered. Will they even be able to apply? You know, will the pandemic still be here? Is it going to be online? So those same issues are resurfacing as we yeah move closer to the February bar exam. Yeah, especially with the temporary licensure provision. I take it there are some people who are saying, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I want to do this online on October 5th and 6th, so I'm going to wait for February. But there's no sure, no sure information on how the February exam will be administered, whether it will be online or in person. And that probably depends on events involving public health issues that no one can fully predict before February. So we may face the same discussion in, in, uh, 
in in February as we are now about October. Mm, exactly. How are we going to know uh, what the effect of temporary licensure is? Are there any provisions in the permission for temporary licensure for reporting to the bar? Uh, I mean, we know the number of people that are involved. Everything you can easily add up the number of graduates of uh, of, uh, of the schools. Uh, is there any rep- going to be any reporting back to the state bar so that after this begins and we come to January, February, uh, we'll be able to say out of X thousand people who are involved, the following number were in fact able to get some practice in under temporary licensure. Is, is there a process set up for that to be known? Um, th- there is a provisional licensure working group uh, that is sort of figuring all of this uh, stuff out right now. Uh, you know, it's important to mention that the court ordered the state bar to implement this program in July. That's when they issued the order with the cut score, this temporary licensure program and the online bar exam. So the bar has had a very short amount of time to figure out some major issues. And not to mention, they've had to do it all over Zoom, in video conferencing calls. But they... They're modeling this licensure program on a current program called the the multi-jurisdictional practice rules, which allows out-of-state attorneys to practice in California under defined circumstances. So they worked after that model. But uh, is that model, I know in some cases there have to be reports to the state bar about out-of-state attorneys appearing, but uh, is there anything that requires, I mean, will we know, for example, it's very important to know whether things work. Is the provisional licensing group considering a reporting mechanism so that six months from now we'll be able to say this program worked or it didn't and it helped this percentage of graduates or it didn't help a large number? Is that part of the discussion that's going on to have to have real knowledge of, of how the process has worked? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't seen that discussion in my reporting at least um no and i have to admit i asked the question because i've tried to be follow this too through your stories and and what else appears and it's one of the things i think that has to be seriously discussed uh you know but it, it would not be difficult to get this information i mean it does not involve it involves thousands but that's not an enormous number of people it's people who otherwise report to the state bar for a whole range of other reasons in terms of their moral character applications, in terms of what they've done for registering for bar exams, and it would not be difficult to essentially call for a report back uh, for those who've taken, uh, who've tried to work under the temporary licensure exam and, and get real-world data uh, on, on how, that, how that has worked. Uh, you've mentioned what you've covered in your stories on this. I do want to say that Everything we've talked about and a great deal else is covered in Henrik's stories in the Daily Journal and there are others as well. And you can easily find those stories if you're a subscriber to the journal because there is a search feature on the home page and you can search and you can archive all stories involving the state bar. And not only stories involving the state bar, but the Daily Journal covers many subjects and we'll now take another break to hear some of the current stories that the Daily Journal is also working and reporting on. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of September 28th. 
The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors ordered the creation of public health councils as COVID health concerns rise and unionizing efforts become a non-option. The councils would consist of employees who monitor their employers' compliance with pandemic safety protocols and would be shielded from retaliation for reporting any problems. Attorneys say these councils are a novel example of the type of non-union organizing that has become more common during COVID-19. Outdated provisions of the National Labor Relations Act and efforts by the National Labor Relations Board have made formal organizing more difficult. A Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel grilled a federal government lawyer over the detention of unaccompanied minor immigrants pending expulsion from the country. DOJ attorney Scott G. Stewart said the government is just following a CDC order aimed at keeping them away from other detained immigrants to prevent the spread of COVID-19. District Judge Dolly Gee said in her original opinion the government needed to abide by the Flores Agreement, which set standards for facility conditions for unaccompanied children. Stewart argued Yee's decision, quote, undermined a critical health measure in the midst of a pandemic, end quote. But the Ninth Circuit panel made it clear it sided with Yee and the government must abide by the Flores Agreement. Contra Costa District Attorney Diana Becton announced the office will no longer file misdemeanor charges for some crimes. Becton said those crimes include trespassing, drug possession, shoplifting, and disorderly conduct. It's an effort to reduce a backlog of nonviolent cases in the court system, and people who would have otherwise been prosecuted for these crimes will instead be directed to behavioral health service providers. There are some exceptions to the rule, but Becton said this allows prosecutors to focus on cases that that pose a greater public safety risk, and we'll review the policy periodically to evaluate its effectiveness. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. Well, we're back having spoken about the provisional licensure exam. These are national issues as well as California issues. Uh, and of course, what we haven't mentioned is it involves out-of-state applicants who wish to practice in California. They also uh, face these, in many ways, larger set of requirements. Uh, so we'll be dealing with these issues. I think you're going to be very busy. The Daily Journal is going to be very busy, Henrik, following what this means for the legal profession. And of course, this also follows things that's had an impact in, in legal education. I mean, in the, in the, these, the students who are now applying, who will be taking the October bar or considering temporary licensures are also students who found in the spring of this year that their classes, in some cases all and in other cases most, uh, went online. And suddenly they were faced not with professors in classrooms uh, or doing clinical work with, with people in the same room, but in dealing with things online. Have students also talked to you about their reaction to what happened to their education in terms of having to do it online for the, for the spring quarter for the most part? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, students are because a, a big part of law school, as I understand it, is you know just a community and being around uh, your peers. But now everything is uh, done online uh, through video conferencing, and uh, a lot of students are worried that they're not getting the education that they're essentially paying for. And there have been lawsuits filed in other states asking for part of their tuition back. But I've also talked to teachers or professors that are struggling with this dilemma. 
of creating an environment where their education won't hurt from online education. So they're using breakout rooms in Zoom and they're trying to do um, you know mock trials online and stuff like that. But people I've talked to are saying that it's very difficult because simulating a trial online is obviously very different from the real deal. Well, also in the spring, I mean, it happened very suddenly uh, in the spring. And so people really sort of took off the shelf whatever was available or plunged into trying to create something under great pressure. Uh, There have been, over the summer, uh, law school faculty realized the difficulty of this. And so there has been a great deal of effort put in by law school and law school professors to develop different forms of, of, uh, of online uh, education uh, in terms of making it more effective. But still, uh, I, the students uh, seem to be, you're right, there have been lawsuits. I don't know that any have succeeded, but there have been lawsuits simply asserting that what was paid for was not received, uh, that what was paid for was an in-person education and the online education was uh, inherently less valuable. Do I take it the schools respond, and there's a lot of truth to it, which is that it's very expensive to develop a quality online courses. It's not just a case of, uh, of taping or opening up uh, straight on lectures. Um, so I take it that's another issue that people are talking about that we're going to be wrestling with uh, for, for quite some time. Yeah, and you you also see uh, law professors being uh, very creative with these new solutions. I mean, obviously, the it's been said over and over again, but this pandemic hit us out of nowhere and no one was prepared for this. But going into the fall semester, I've talked to law professors who have made some changes to their online education based on what they've learned during the spring semester. So they've learned to use the tools better. Uh, and some have even said that part of their curriculum or their classes is actually works better online because you can have better discussions using breakout rooms and so on. And and also some have said that you get a more intimate contact because you see the students, you know, in their homes, you know, and you get a better sense of who you're teaching. <laughs> I think what the discussion has developed, which is really quite interesting, which is that there are advantages to adding some online work to legal education, as well as other things. People are finding that in law practice. But I don't think, if you run into anyone who said that 100% online is, is preferable to, uh, to, to time in the classroom? Uh, no, I have not <laughs> run into someone who said that. Uh, but they're saying that uh, a hybrid model might be you know, a, a good way forward in the future, um, especially since uh, a lot of trials are, are done online now too. And for other stories th- that I've reported on not related to the bar exam, people have been positive to that development. No, that's interesting you use that word hybrid because that is what's being discussed through the range of law practice, we're clearly developing what amounts to a permanent new model of mediation, which will be a hybrid model, because there's simply some advantages in terms of scheduling and otherwise having people uh, come in online. And so we are in this period of of experimentation. And uh, though I think everyone agrees that 100% online is not in any way a substitute for uh, a direct participation Uh, in classrooms or in courtrooms or in law offices, that what people are discovering is that the best of online techniques 
uh, can be added to the curriculum and can be helpful even when we go back to a time when people can uh, can be together. So what would you say, Heinrich? You've, you, you know, you've, got, you've done something that very few people have done in terms of the whole range. You talk to law students, you talk to law professors, you've talked to lawyers who have to deal with temporary licensure. Uh, just a general question about where we are. What do you sense is the mood of people in terms of dealing with this? Are they optimistic? Are they challenged? Are, are they pessimistic? What are their concerns? I know it's a broad question, but very few people have had the exposure to the range of people talking about the reaction uh, to this new reality than you've had. So just generally, what would you say the mood is by people having to deal with this? Yeah, I, I wish I could give a yes or no answer to that, but the mood is very mixed. Uh, you know, students are, a lot of students are feeling, I mean, downright desperate about the whole situation. Other people see opportunities here, you know, like I mentioned in the hybrid model. There's a lot of uncertainty and I think people are very much figuring things out. And, you know, what what happens with the bar exam this year could shape how the bar exam is administered in the future. I mean, I've seen some people suggesting why why not just uh, administer the bar exam online every year from now on. The changes that are being done here could definitely impact the future and people yeah, have mixed feelings. <laughs> Henrik, thank you so much. You're in a very fortunate position as part of the Daily Journal and everyone at the Daily Journal in being able to reach out and talk with so many people. Uh, as I said, when I ask you about the mood, uh, there really is no one that has had a greater opportunity uh, to talk with people across the whole range of issues and in all their different uh, positions to get a sense of how people are viewing this. Your reporting has been extremely important to everyone who reads the Delhi Journal and everyone who considers these issues. I know it will continue to be that. We will continue to read your work in the Daily Journal and rely and, and come to appreciate uh, the judgment and information that you bring to reporting on this. So thank you for that, Henrik, and thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, it's really a great honor, and uh, we're very, very pleased that you've joined us and taken this time. Thank you for having me.